A king's time as ruler rises and falls like the sun. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We must act together as a united people for the birth of a new world. Where we are met with cynicism and doubt and those who tell us that we can't, we will respond with that timeless creed. Yes, we can. For those of us climbing to the top of the food chain, there can be no mercy. I will do what queens do. I will rule. When there are no ceilings, the sky's the limit. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's always good to have outsiders, skeptics, <laughs> people that are willing to stand up and say the emperor has no clothes. Hey, it's Joe Sorge and welcome to another episode of Make Believe, the podcast where existing beliefs are challenged and new beliefs are sometimes born. Today we're going to focus on leaders, you know, those people who run our countries and lead our religious institutions. What makes them great? And what can make them dangerous? Do they believe what they preach or do they charm us with what we want to hear? What we'd like you to get from this episode is an appreciation of some of the common techniques used by leaders to attract us, motivate us, and sometimes get us to do extreme things like go to war. How can we identify when a leader is being genuine or when they're misleading us with words and slogans to play on our emotions? Although certain leadership skills can be desirable traits, we weren't too surprised to learn that there's a great deal of overlap between the skill set of a great leader and the skill set of, well, we'll let our first expert explain. Uh, from the early 1990s to up to 2005, was studying PET scans, fMRIs, spec scans of murders. Quit pro quo. I tell you things, you tell me things. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. It's Bateman, Patrick Bateman. I've killed a lot of people. Here's Johnny. And I was asked to analyze them. And I created a model where these are the structures that are turned off in psychopaths. This is the basis of psychopathy. That's Dr. James Fallon, professor of psychiatry and human behavior at the University of California, who spends a lot of time studying the dark side of the brain using brain imaging, mapping, and circuitry. Ten years ago, he made a startling discovery. So at that same year when it was going on, I had finished all that analysis, and I had all these murderous scans on my desk. What's the most you ever lost in a coin toss? We just happened to be doing a completely separate study on Alzheimer's, and we had the PET scans. But we didn't have enough normals. You have to have the experimental group, the patients, and they got to have an equal number of normals. And we came up eight short, so I got eight people in my family. We usually don't do this, but I thought we should do it because uh, my wife's family all had Alzheimer's. So there's a family, got our PET scans done, and the PET scans came back, and I, the technician brought them in, put them on my desk, and I started to look through them. And uh, everything looked normal. I was so happy that everybody's looked basically normal. And then the last one in the pile was uh, very abnormal. And I didn't see the name on it because we covered the names up for everything. I got the technician and I said, you, I said something really wrong here. You guys have switched the murder pile of data with the family's Alzheimer's pile, obviously. Go back and check the machine, computer, everything. And they came back twice. 
said, no, that's somebody in your family. I said, well, you know, this is basically somebody who shouldn't be walking around the streets. If this is a real person that's not in jail, we got to find out and put him away or have him looked at. So I had to tear off the label that covered the name. They peeled it back. It was me. Here's this neuroscientist studying all these killers, psychopaths, and he's one of them. I came home that week and told, told Diane, my wife, I said, that's the damnedest thing just happened. My brain looks just like a, all these psychopathic murders I was studying. She goes, it doesn't surprise me. What? You? You? That girl really needs to learn to keep her mouth shut. Whoa, that would have freaked me out. So we asked Dr. Fallon, tongue-in-cheek, if someone with a psychopathic PET scan could function normally in society. I had to very carefully try to uh, engage my emotional brain in, when dealing with people, because otherwise I'm so highly trained to be emotionless. It, it just isn't there. You, you can process without looping into the limbic system, into the emotional and social brain. That's very efficient. If you don't have to loop down into there, you can move very quickly and make nice, cold, hard decisions. So for me in my personal life, I have to slow down and engage what's there in my emotional brain to care about it because I don't naturally do that. We asked him to describe some of the behaviors you might find in nonviolent psychopaths. You do things impulsively that are clearly antisocial, that hurt people. You know, there's all this other family of traits that have to do with manipulation and not being anxious. It's being able to manipulate it's the ability to be very glib, chatty, and sort of cutesy, uh, but having no sense of anxiety about it, no morality about it. You can go through it like it's completely natural. And you can say things that are very convincing because you clearly don't think it's wrong. When I've been stopped by the police... Everybody just stay calm! I can handle this, no problem! Other people have gotten into trouble, they always let me go. License and registration, please. What seems to be the officer problem? I don't look guilty. The cops are absolutely trained to look for guilty eyes and guilty, and I show none of it. That's a psychopathic trait, because I never show anxiety or... If I show it, I'm making it up for effect. I'm getting them to believe in my world temporarily. I create a world, and they buy into it. Too bad if you believe my game. You know, I, I think I might have found a companion. A companion for that long walk to the light. Do you mind if I put my arm around you? It's okay. No, I don't mind. The psychopath is somebody who's an intraspecies predator. It's a, a human that is a predator on other humans. And it can manifest itself in many ways depending on what the drive of that person is. It could be a sexual, it could be financial. It could end up in killing or just manipulating people. It's messing with people and playing with them for your own fun and you don't really care about people in a fundamental way. It's not that psychopaths don't understand what other people are feeling, they do. That's called cognitive empathy. Uh, but they don't have emotional empathy, that is they can't project themselves into the heart and mind and soul of another person. They don't feel somebody else's pain, but they understand the happiness and the pain, and they know it. But the problem is with psychopaths, they use that against you. They know what you're thinking and feeling, and they just play with you. If you're testing somebody for psychopathy, you want to see their reaction to, let's say, pictures of awful things or things that, in normal people, invoke empathy. And you know the parts of the brain in normal people that turn on. And in people who are psychopaths, they don't turn on. It's like being blind. 
So it's like showing a blind person something who's never had any vision at all, and you say, well, tell us about blue. Tell us, they go, what are you talking about? They have no idea. Well, with a psychopath, you start talking about morality and anxiety. They don't know what you're talking about. They're blind to it. Okay, all very interesting. But let's find out what psychopathy and psychopathic traits have to do with leadership, if anything. Almost all psychopaths have a thing called fearless dominance. And fearless dominance is a very strong ego, usually associated with narcissism. They know things and you don't. They understand you better than you do. And because of that confidence that they have, they, they have the light surrounding them when they walk into a room. And of course, we associate that with leadership. And it's found in, as it turns out, people in a lot of our most successful presidents. And uh, people just think that they're leaders, which allows people with this trait and psychopaths to use it against you because people want to be around somebody with this charisma and this fearlessness that's part of what's called a pro-social trait for psychopathy. And we like people who are that way, right? We like our political leaders or any leaders to have this confident fearlessness. We must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. And I want to say this to the television audience, because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. I know what I'm doing and I'm fearless. I've been in the barrel, tumbling down Niagara Falls. I emerged and I lived. And that's such a liberating feeling. Fearless dominance was measured by taking all the top biographers of all the American presidents and going through their behavior, their life, how they treated people. And so when you look at how it turns out, the president with the highest psychopath rating for fearless dominance, this chutzpah, charisma, I'm going to kick the shit out of everybody, was Teddy Roosevelt. I am not leading this fight as a matter of aesthetic pleasure. I am leading because somebody must lead or else the fight would not be made at all. And he was perfect for that time because that was a time of macho America. It wouldn't be so now. I mean, he would be assassinated by some feminist. He's just so over the top. But he has that personality, and people loved it. And JFK was right up there at the top. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win. And people love that charisma, right? But you talk about a manipulator and a womanizer and as somebody who just used people. But people still loved it. It was like, oh, he's so dreamy and everything. He was like right at the top for psychopathy. You just thank the Air Force budget. Well, this is obviously a fuck up. People who are leaders who have low fearless dominance, you know, the Jimmy Carters and Gerald Fords and George Bush Sr., uh, they are seen to have less uh, le leadership traits. They can be great leaders and inspired people, but the average person doesn't buy it. We asked whether a leader with a megadose of fearless dominance could control the impulse to manipulate others. Some people have it and they don't need to express it because they're successful. If you're somebody who doesn't need anything, if you don't need money, you don't need sex, you don't need power, a psychopath can be a very positive influence because they just want to win and get things done and they have endless energy. And so uh, a pro-social psychopath who has no needs can be a very, very good friend. I have no friends as far as I'm concerned. 
While a sociopathic leader with needs might be very dangerous to a country, we also wondered whether they might be dangerous to us individually. Dr. Stephen Novella of Yale University Medical School tells us how listening to charismatic leaders might light up different regions of our brains. There's a part of our brain, the frontal lobes, which carry out a process that neuroscientists call executive function. That is kind of the person who's in charge, if you will, in our brains. Okay, Eunice travel plans. I need to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday. Got it? Got it. Business is business. And as we all know, in order to get something done, you've got to do something. In order to do something, we've got to get to work. So let's get to work. That is the part of our brain that is evaluating the consequences of the decisions that we're making and deciding if they're good for us or not. It's the long-term planning executive of our mind. Parts of our brain will light up when we are confronted with a charismatic leader. And in fact, when we are confronted with a charismatic leader who we identify with, who believes the same things that we do, we actually emotionally respond, but then we turn off the analytical part of our brain. We don't think too carefully about what they're saying. It just makes us feel good because he is supporting our team. So we asked how this brain activity might be detected. There have been, in fact, uh, studies looking at the functioning of the human brain through functional MRI scanning, where they looked at people who were listening to a charismatic speaker from uh, their own faith or a different faith. And what they found was that people who were listening to a charismatic speaker who shared their faith, that the activity of the, the frontal lobe, the analytical part of the brain, actually was relatively decreased. So in essence, they were turning off their critical thinking skills, their reality testing, while they were listening to a charismatic leader that was reinforcing their belief system. Don't follow a leader who hadn't proven that they can produce while going through. Dr. Fallon again. Leaders who can hypnotize whole crowds they learn to talk to somebody's anterior insula. They're talking to that gut-controlling part of, of people's brains. That part of the brain is very much key to forming emotional memories. What's gonna drive me to feel safe and to be with mommy and daddy and to get what I want and all my selfish needs, that's that whole system. And all of that would then connect with that hedonism center. How do I get what I want? All drugs of addiction go through there. All senses of love go through there. All attachment goes through there. So how do charismatic leaders activate the emotional part of the brain and suppress analytical thinking? We are very compelled by stories, especially when it really means something to us emotionally. We pay attention. It's very compelling to us. We listen to it. We evolved to, to listen to cautionary tales, to listen to people, to listen to the people in our group, in our tribe. The mistake of my first couple of years was thinking that this job was just about getting the policy right. Uh, and that's important. But you know, the, the nature of this office is also to tell a story to the American people that um, gives them a sense of unity and purpose and optimism, especially during tough times. Radio host and political commentator Buck Sexton talks about the communication styles of President Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump. President Obama is a charismatic figure. You know, you're sort of drawn in, you listen to him. The, there's a, a, the, uh, a theatricality to him. It's the painting I keep in my private office. 
a big-eyed green owl with blue wings, made by a seven-year-old girl who was taken from us in Newtown, given to me by her parents so I wouldn't forget. It's the courage of the young soldier from Arizona who nearly died on the battlefield in Afghanistan, but who has learned to speak again and walk again. And earlier this year, stepped through the door of the Oval Office on his own power to salute and shake my hand. Um, I think Hillary Clinton, uh, quite honestly, doesn't have that at all in terms of her ability to inspire people, to be... Uh, to seem like someone that you want to hear more from and that you think can fix your problems. Rigorous vetting already takes place while refugees are still overseas. And it's a process that historically takes 18 to 24 months. But Congress needs to... I don't think Hillary has that gear. I don't think that's something that she she has in her to do. And um, she always... She does come across as either robotic or a little aloof or a little overly scripted. Some would strip away crucial counterterrorism tools, even with appropriate judicial and congressional. Uh, She has a very heavy reliance on resume. She has a very heavy reliance on um, a a whole machinery of people around her who are constantly telling you how brilliant she is and how she's done such an amazing job. And then she gets up to speak and the polls so far, and this couldn't change, have shown that the more that she is personally exposed to the American people and the more that she's exposed to uh, the sort of offhand comment or the heckler in the audience or the less those who are not just diehard Democrats, uh, the less they like her. She comes across on a personal level as very phony. Now, I know that like many places across the country, there's more work to do to increase trust between communities and law enforcement. Just last month, I know here a young African-American man was fatally shot by a police officer, and I understand an investigation is underway. Whatever the outcome, tragedies like this raise hard questions about racial justice in America. You know, the people that I know who are voting for Hillary are like, yeah, I'm voting for Hillary because I think she'll do the best job, and they kind of trail off, and there's a sense of, like, fatalism to the whole, well, you know, I want a Democrat. We asked Buck how much likability plays a role in a candidate's chances. Likability is an annoying thing to talk about, but that is actually what people vote based on. They, they'd like to think they're voting based on tackling the national debt and, and how to deal with the Islamic State. They really just vote based on how it makes them feel to cast the vote in a certain direction. I think that's been true for a long time, but now the actual candidate as a person is a big part of how you feel about voting for them. It's also the amplification of personality. People didn't know the personalities of presidential candidates in the 19th century, but it wasn't something that you could viscerally experience and feel. Now you'll hear people talk about, well, was Carly Fiorina charming enough? Chris Christie was a little too brash. Wouldn't it be great if we could give our political candidates a personality test before the election? Stephen Colbert has an interesting and humorous perspective on the subject. The most definitive personality test of them all is the Myers-Briggs a psychometric questionnaire developed by the mother-daughter team Catherine Cook-Briggs and Isabella Briggs-Myers. It's the kind of test your parents pay for you to take when you're out of college but don't have a job yet to see what sort of profession they should force you to become. (laughs) And the test divides humanity into 16 personalities. So which of these 16 personalities am I? What if we find out 
that I don't have a personality. It is simply not possible to have no personality. Have you ever met Ryan Seacrest? No. The thing with a personality like Trump, he is so egotistical, so narcissistic, he will do anything not to fail. You rely on his narcissism to win, and that's how the populace uses the psychopathic traits, because that's a weakness, to be driven so much by the need to dominate, to compete, to win. We will have so much winning if I get elected that you may get bored with winning. Believe me, I agree, you'll never get bored with winning. We never get bored. We are going to make America great again. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. According to Michael Shermer, consistency and commitment to a set of principles are both critical traits for a leader to be successful. Let's say you're a Democrat or a Republican, and you have a commitment to a particular set of core principles that your political party stands for. From that moment on, you want to show your fellow group primates <laughs> that you're a consistent believer in these principles, that you are not a flip-flopper, wishy-washy, mamby-pamby. Political consistency in beliefs is a sign that you're a good group member. You're loyal, you're consistent. We can count on you, that you're not going to just change your mind at the last minute. But this presents a serious problem. If leaders can't reevaluate when new information becomes available and change their positions, then they're stuck defending out-of-date policies and beliefs. This could be why members of Congress appear behind the times when it comes to fast-moving topics like science and technology. They might, in fact, know the truth, or at least their advisors do, but they might be reluctant to acknowledge that their positions are no longer tenable for fear of losing the aura that surrounds an unswerving leader. The same is almost certainly true for religious leaders. For example, it took the Catholic Church 350 years to apologize to Galileo after condemning him. For what? For concluding that the Earth orbits the Sun and not the reverse. Do we really want our leaders to stick to the old tune even though it's tired and out of date? Why not reward them for updating their positions as new information becomes available? So we asked Dr. Fallon if leaders might have a certain presence that causes us to ignore their out-of-date ideas and policies. Leadership is something we're so keyed for. When somebody walks into a room, you know that they have a certain basic group of skills that makes them a leader. They have an aura, they have charisma, and they have a swagger. That's the light around them. And that person will immediately create responsiveness in everybody in a room either a sense of competition from some of the guys or a sense of I want to be that guy's friend from a bunch of guys and some of the women will say that's a great leader or I want to have sex with him he should be my husband all these things will be flying in people's minds within milliseconds of seeing somebody walk into the, the room you walked in the joint I could see you were a man of distinction a real big spender hey big spender A little time with me. They learn early on in life the people are responding to them. They look at their body language, the way they hold their head, the way they their eyes, all these things, and they can associate all of these physical tells and the word tells on how that person will respond to you asking them to follow them. Certain leaders know how to do that. Anybody who's met Bill Clinton, they say, my God, it's just like he's just talking to me. But that's charisma. You know, it's part of charisma. But not everybody buys that as charisma. It's a tune that they're playing for everybody. And it's a romantic story, and you want to believe it. So much so that, well, maybe, you know, in the back of your head, you know you're being conned, but you go, I want it so much, I'll just hold this belief.
So we've learned that leaders are unusual people. They have some incredible qualities and they have some potentially dangerous qualities. Why do we elevate certain people to the position of leadership? And why do we take the risk of being allegiant to them? We asked Dr. Stephen Novella why we need leaders and why we would consider going into combat or otherwise risk our lives by complying with their decisions. That evolved to support the hierarchical tribal nature of human society. We see this in chimpanzees. Chimpanzees will follow a troop leader into deadly combat. Why would they do that? Why would you risk your life? Well, you have to really surrender yourself to some degree to a charismatic leader if you will do that. Clearly, the tribes that followed leaders killed off the tribes that were individualistic and were all doing their own things because we evolved from the ones that had at least some psychological mechanism to follow a leader and to adhere to a hierarchy and a tribe. And now from Dr. Robert Kurzban, professor of psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And it very well might be that we descend from individuals who were good at intergroup conflict and were able to exploit individuals through warfare, uh, through these kinds of violent means. And so as abhorrent as the idea seems, I think it, at least there are scholars who would defend the view that we're descended from people who were really good at being enthusiastic about opportunities for conquest, for conquering. If you live in a society like ours where we want things to be completely safe, that brings in all sorts of reasons to surround yourself with people, and even politicians, who will protect that safety. They're going to take care of the boogeyman. They're going to take care of the bad people who are going to come and get us. And so I think to look at an advanced culture any different in this way than a primitive sort of existence would be a fallacy. The most peaceful society, they always just bring out, where's the warrior? Where's the complete wild man? You need that person who is fearless and aggressive, too, because the other tribe has got one like that, and we need him to fight him. And as a modern-day example of wild men playing with fire, in 1963, Premier Nikita Khrushchev of the Soviet Union installed nuclear missiles in Cuba. President John F. Kennedy responded with the following address to the American people and the world. We will not prematurely or unnecessarily risk the course of worldwide nuclear war in which even the fruits of victory would be ashes in our mouth. But neither will we shrink from that risk at any time it must be faced. It shall be the policy of this nation to regard any nuclear missile launched from Cuba against any nation in the Western Hemisphere as an attack by the Soviet Union on the United States requiring a full retaliatory response upon the Soviet Union. Let no one doubt that this is a difficult and dangerous effort on which we have set out. But the greatest danger of all would be to do nothing. The cost of freedom is always high, but Americans have always paid it. And one path we shall never choose, and that is the path of surrender or submission. Our goal is not the victory of might, but the vindication of right. It's one thing to be born with the traits that make one a good leader, but it's another thing to misuse those traits to exploit people. We explore with author Tom Asacker some of the manipulation tactics that leaders use to get what they want. How do you change someone's behavior? That's the question everyone wants the answer to, right? All the politicians want that answer. How do I get them to change their vote to my side? And I come back to this very simple equation. 
what do the people that I want to select me, to choose me, to join my cause, what do they fundamentally desire? What is that future? How do they picture themselves in that future? Can I paint that picture for them? Whatever that picture happens to be and empower them because everyone wants to be the hero of their own life. They all want to move forward to a better place in the future. And if we can help them do that by showing them a vision, by helping them move towards it, then we can get them to change their behavior. Otherwise, they're going to stay right where they are because it's much less risky to be where you are than it is to venture forward into something that's unknown to you. Dr. James Fallon again. A key component to the attractiveness of people, of individuals, is the kind of empathy that they exude or the kind of empathy you have and connect with with other people, including leaders. And if you look at it, there's two arrows of empathy. One of these, at one end, are the people who are connected to their very small tribe or their family. So everything they do will get their family, that small group, what they need. That's enough for a lot of people. Individual little things. If a politician goes through and knows the cross-section of all those family of needs, they can get a bunch of votes and it's purely a selfish vote. And so politicians know this. Somebody like Trump knows this intuitively. And so he will go through each type of person. You say, what are they angry about? And you feed them something going to take care of that anger. Now, the other kind of this other axis could be your religion. It could be your nation. And so you can appeal to these, like I'm going to save the planet. That's a different voter than somebody says, I need an extra $300 a year to take care of my family. And sometimes there's a darker side to political persuasion. In terms of how political ideas are sold, I like the Mencken line that uh, a demagogue is somebody who sells uh, ideas he knows to be untrue to a room full of people he knows to be idiots. It's a very cynical view of it, but it's, but it's the basics of how a lot of political salesmanship is done. A lot of the words that are used um, constantly in political discourse are completely politically loaded. Progress, progressive, equality. I mean, what do these things even mean? They, well, they mean whatever you can convince people they mean. Politicians love to uh, belabor metaphors and to use sort of visual imagery for our politics, right? Like if you, if you don't approve of my healthcare plan, you're rolling grandma off a cliff. That's much more effective and that stays with people much longer, the notion of grandma in a wheelchair being rolled off of a cliff. And this was a real political ad that was run. If you want to get a, a group of people to believe what you want them to believe and more importantly to do what you want them to do, whether it's voting or storm the Bastille, you have to give them imagery and you have to appeal to them on an emotional level. And sometimes leaders, particularly religious leaders and cult leaders, will deploy tactics that are akin to mind control or brainwashing to get their followers to carry out extreme tasks like suicide bombing. To brainwash somebody, you have to find out their triggers, their emotional memory triggers. I would find out every little thing and I would then recreate your life in my mind. You know, your fears and what pleased you and what didn't, all the bad things that happened. And by knowing that, I would then associate certain things about brainwashing against somebody. I would associate those bad emotional triggers with that person. And then I would associate my positive triggers with the positive feelings you had 
all I'm doing is evoking and playing with the balance of negative emotional memory and positive emotional memory. And that way you will find it irresistible. And then we have the lunatics, the psychopathic leaders who have desperate needs that are only satisfied through humiliation and torture of other human beings. Many are openly comparing Donald Trump to Adolf Hitler. Ladies and gentlemen, here to defend himself is Adolf Hitler. The Hitler comparisons are easy to fall into, but I think 99% of Hitler comparisons are pretty much trash because you're, you're talking about a level of evil that would require the leader who was willing to do that sort of thing um, and I, I, I don't believe that any of the political candidates in this country are anywhere even in, in the universe or stratosphere of, of those kinds of thoughts. Trump is a guy who likes golf courses and attractive women and fancy hotels. And I mean, you know, this is not, uh, this is not somebody who's looking to have horrific things done to anybody. There's a huge difference between I don't like that guy, punch him in the face, and I want to create a massive industrialized extermination machine to kill millions of people. We're just a deeply different society than Germany in the 1930s. I mean, aftermath of the First World War, you just had a, sort of a, a perfect storm of bad circumstances with an individual who was deeply evil. Hitler was playing into a previous hatred. A lot of Germans were miserable financially, they lost power, and they were looking for a scapegoat, and he found their scapegoat. He appealed to the lowest form of human motivation, which is revenge, and then he piled on some envy and jealousy on top. We all have these emotions, but it was so high at that point, when so many people, he was able to pull it off. You don't have to have a majority. 30% of highly motivated people can kick ass in any society. Hitler proved this. Stalin proved it. These tyrants prove it every time. Just give me a core group of highly motivated, pissed off people, and uh, you've got it. You've got tyranny. You know, Latin American dictators, they're not consensus builders. What they do actually is sort of classic dic uh, dictatorial tactics. Seize enough assets to buy off everyone around you who could be a threat to your power or who you need for your power, and then you also give just enough to the population early on that you have some momentum going in. Now this always fails because there's not enough at the very top to make the rest of the country happy, and inevitably you get into the same place. Tyrants keep the angry angry, keep the pissed off people pissed off, and then uh, the, that whole group of people who would otherwise feel the twinge of conscience, you give them reasons to look, look over it. You hide the evidence. And then there's the group that are the ones, you know, it's those academics and journalists and writers and poets and, and rock stars who uh, say, this is so fucked up. Well, you have to kill those people or send them away. You know, and that's what they do. I, I gave a talk at the Oslo Freedom Forum on dictators, and they had very common traits. And here's the consistent traits in dictators. Glib and charming. Hans Briggs, oh no! Oh, hello, great to see you again, Hans. Grandiose sense of self. Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. Pathological liars, manipulative cunning, complete lack of remorse or guilt. We don't submit to terror. We make the terror. Emotionally shallow, lack of empathy, callous. I am the king. I will punish you. Deflect responsibility for their actions to others, hypersexuality or asexuality. Austin Powers is no longer a threat to me. I have his mojo. Having an exaggerated sense of self-importance. 
Good morning, Your Majesty. It is another beautiful day in Zamunda. Being preoccupied with fantasies about success, power, beauty, requiring constant admiration, having a sense of entitlement. Now, if you look at that list, that's exactly the hair list for psychopathy. What a wonderful took us 40 minutes to say the talented Monty Python troop said in 30 seconds. But the bottom line, we hope you'll agree, is that leaders can be highly fallible people who behave in strange ways that human beings, for whatever unexplained reasons, require of them. But not our listeners, not here at Make Believe. We like to question what we're told, right? And we remain skeptical of what our leaders preach for the very reasons illustrated in this episode. So we'd like to thank you for listening. And we'd like to thank our production team, Christina Sorge, for producing the episode, along with assistant producers Georgia Cohen, Mike Scally, and Simone Jantz. Editing by Ollie Riley-Smith. Sound design and musical score by Andy Sorge and Scott McKay-Gibson. And all of our experts and guests who brought wisdom to this recording. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and got something out of it. If so, then please rate us favorably and come back for more. You can visit our website at mbelief.com. That's the letter M followed by the word belief ending in an F.com. Or find us wherever podcasts are available. I'm Joe Sorge. Thanks for listening to Make Belief. <laughs>